Test one, two, check. Is this somebody's Bible forgot up here on the pulpit? I got my own, so I won't need yours. Same one as I got, but good Bible, good choice, good taste. Okay, well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That sounded, that sounded like some professional worship there. It doesn't matter what we sound like. The only thing that matters is our heart. Whether we can sing those lyrics out of the genuineness of our heart and not out of just because that we can sing it with our mouths. But like Jesus said, these people, they draw near with me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So that's the most important thing, brothers and sisters, is that our hearts are right with the Lord when we sing. Such powerful words that we sung, huh? And truly, it is well with our souls. It's great to see everybody today. I'm very excited. We are starting um, the book of 2 Corinthians today, so I, I uh, invite you to turn there in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. And I'm just so eager to get to this book because, like I said last week, I think it's just the perfect book for us. I think it's, it's going to fit us like a glove, especially because where we're at, how we're, we're, we're seeking to, uh, as a young church, establish a biblical, faithful church, a church that bears the marks of a healthy church. And I think we are going to see mark after mark after mark in the book of 2 Corinthians. But like with any book, uh, we have to uh, deal with some introductory or some prelim preliminary things and that's always exciting, you know, because it's always important to know the background of a book before you just jump right into it. You have to know something of the, the context. You have to know something of the historical background. And I think that's part of the reason at least so many Christians don't get much out of the Bible when they read it is because they don't understand the background of the, of the book that they're reading. They don't understand the, the, the introductory material. And uh, um, I think it's just it's absolutely essential for understanding uh, the book that we're about to dive into. So let's, uh, let's read the passage that we're going to look at today, which is just verses 1 and 2. And I had a lot of people predict that last week. How many verses do you think he'll do? I think he'll do two verses. And uh, that's right. I'm just going to cover verses 1 and 2. And uh, that'll give us, I think, enough of a springboard to deal with all the different inter introductory uh, issues. So let's read this together, and then we'll pray, and we'll get started, okay? Verse 1. The word of the Lord reads this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all of the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we will begin. Let's pray together. Father, we just come before you today so excited with hearts, hopefully, expectant to see what your word has for us. And Lord, it is such a joy and it is such a privilege to preach your word among people that desire your word. And Father, I pray that your word would always be preeminent here in our church, that Heritage Grace Community Church would be a church that is grounded and rooted and has its foundation in the word of God. Help us, God, never to deviate from that. Help us, Lord, never to become about anything other than your word. I pray, God, your word would truly have its full effect in us, just like the Apostle Paul prayed that the word of God may be fully carried out, that he would fully carry out the preaching of your word. That was his burden, 
and that is my burden, and that that is our burden. That's my prayer, God, that we would all desire to see the preached word have its full effect in our hearts and lives individually and our hearts and lives as a church. I pray, God, for all of the many, many needs that exist in this church, in the lives of the people in this church. I know, Father, that there are many, uh, many needs, Lord, that um, are present in this church today. Father, I pray for marriages today in our church. I pray for the children today in our church that they would come to know you at a young age. I pray for people in our church that are yet without Christ, that they've never closed with Christ. They've never done business with Christ. Father, I pray that you would draw them near by the blood of the Lamb, God. I pray that those who are far off would be brought near today, God. And uh, Father, I pray that our church would always be about the business of discipleship. And I pray that you would use your people. I know that in this church resides many, many gifted men and women. Father, brothers and sisters, that you have gifted by your spirit. And I pray, Father, that uh, in our church, people would feel like they can flourish in their giftings and that they would not feel capped or quenched, that they would not feel as if they need to be under anybody's thumb. But God, that they would be released in their gifts and their callings. And I pray that Heritage Grace would be a place where a vibrant body of Christ would exist. Lord, help us to use all of our gifts that you've given us for your glory, for the fame of your name. And Father, I pray that as we all hear your word, that we would be encouraged, that we would be equipped to do the work of the ministry. We thank you, God. We pray your blessing on your word. We, we pray for your blessing on our time together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, um, if I was to entitle this introduction, I could just say today we're looking at the introduction. But I really want to just give us a, a sermon title that we can latch onto, sort of a, uh, a theme, I, I guess, that we can put over the entire book of 2 Corinthians. What is the banner that hangs over this entire book? And I think the theme is found Right here in chapter 1, if you look with me to verse 24, and it is this small little phrase that Paul uses. So I've entitled the sermon, For Your Joy, the introduction to 2 Corinthians. Because Paul uses that exact phrase when he comes to the end of chapter 1. He says, not that we lord it over you, over, over your faith, but we are workers with you, for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. So what does he mean when he uses all that language there? You have to understand the background of this book, that the church at Corinth, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the church in Corinth has had a lot of issues. It's a problematic church. It's a, it's a, there are systemic problems in the church of Corinth that go into all sorts of different sectors of the church. There are factions. There are divisions. There is a, there's an abuse of spiritual gifts. There is a perverted uh, teaching of eschatology, of the end times. There is an undermining of the Apostle Paul and his uh, authority as an apostle. There are all these sorts of issues. There is sin, as we learn from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. We know that there was, a, there was a, there was sexual immorality in the church. There are all these problems that Paul is facing. 
And at times, at times, the Apostle Paul seems to come down with a heavy hand of a shepherd. He says, matter of fact, in one section of the, of the letter at the, towards the end of 2 Corinthians, that his desire was that he would not have to come with the rod, right? Because he would not spare is the language that he used. He said, look, I'm ready to come to you to discipline whoever I've got to discipline whether it's people undermining my authority, whether it's people that refuse to repent of sexual immorality, whatever it may be, factions, divisions, gossip, slander, he's ready to stamp out whatever systemic issues were going on in the church. But Paul doesn't want us to ever get it twisted. That that is not the aim of what Paul says or what Paul does. The aim of what Paul does and everything that he does for the church lest we should ever doubt this or ever lose sight of this. It is for the joy of the church. It is for the joy of the church. It is for the happiness of the church. It is for the well-being of the church. He wants to see a church that is thriving in the joy of the Lord. But because the Apostle Paul knows there is nothing more toxic in the church than sin. There is nothing more that will destroy the joy of a church, of a true church, than sin. Sin will destroy and will erode the very foundation of the church because it will erode the very joy-producing truths of the gospel. And so Paul doesn't want that to be undermined. And so everything he says and does, brothers and sisters, is for I could say it by way of extension, for our joy, for our joy. Now, let's look at three aspects of this introduction. Now, granted, I'm going to follow some of the customary points that people follow, the author, the audience, and the aim of the letter. I want to attack it maybe slightly from different angles, things that the Lord has just kind of placed on my heart to bring out out of this passage. Number one, then, of course, we have to deal with the author. Who is the author? Well, you say Paul. Duh, let's get on to the second point. <laughs> but I think there's more there. We need to extract all of the riches that deal with the author, his calling, and then, as we'll see even right here in verse 1, his companion. So two parts. There is, the, under the authorship of this letter, there is Paul's calling and there is Paul's companion, and both are important. Paul's calling is important because, as we've stated already, the, the, the authority of Paul is being undermined. Paul's apostleship, his, his authority as an apostle is being questioned, undermined, and because of that, my friends, there is havoc. There's, there's people wreaking havoc in the church because once the Corinthians lose their grip on the fact that Paul is an apostle of God and of Christ Jesus, that he has been uh, assigned and appointed to that office by the will of God, then his commands mean nothing. You see? See why it's important? They have to hold on to Paul's apostolic authority, and so he seeks to assert himself in that way. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, we know part of Paul's calling. Uh, if you want to see the autobiographical sketch of Paul's calling, obviously, you can turn to Acts chapter 9, and there you can see his Damascus Road experience. You know, Paul's conversion is famous, right? We say even of ourselves, I had a Damascus Road conversion. 
Paul will forever go down in history as one of the most incredible conversion stories of all time. Here is a, a Pharisee. Here is a, a man who was devoutly, rigorously devoted to the traditions of his fathers in Judaism. Here is a man who was so zealous to stamp out anything that was going to rise up against the pharisaical aristocrats in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and that whole hierarchy of Judaistic power that existed in the first century that he went so far as to persecute Christians. He was a Christian killer, we say. He persecuted the way. And uh, it wasn't until God powerfully revealed the Son to him that Paul's life was changed. You know, Paul talks about his conversion in Galatians chapter 1. If you want to turn there, he kind of gives us a different glimpse, but he, he reminds the, the Galatians in Galatians 1.13 of what he was like prior to being Paul. This is when he was Saul of Tarsus. And that's what oftentimes Jews would do when they would adopt a Greek name like Paulos. It would rhyme with their Jewish name, Saulos. So he takes the name Paulos. He is called Paul as well as Saul. And then in the book of Acts, you see that sort of a transition. They stop calling him Saul and they start calling him Paul. But in Galatians 1.13, listen to what he says. He says, for you have heard of my manner of life in Judaism. So that's what he was devoted to. He was a Jew and he was totally devoted to the, 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 the principles of Judaism and to the traditions of his fathers. He says, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous. Do you think Paul's trying to help us to, to understand just how fanatical he was as, as, as a Pharisee? He was extremely fanatical. He was sold out. That just was part of who he was, I think. I think that probably had a lot to do with his personality. He was a very extreme person, probably. Uh, probably. But we know here that he was extremely zealous, or you could even translate that word jealous, for the ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, and he called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. See, the Apostle Paul was not just called to be a Christian. From the very moment of his conversion, he had a calling on his life to be an apostle. Yes, he was one who was untimely born. Yes, he was a Johnny-come-lately, if you would, to the apostles, so that even the apostles, they, they sort of feared in Acts chapter 9, they feared whether or not to even embrace him, remember? Like, wait a minute, this is Saul. This is the Christian killer. This is the one persecuting the way. But it didn't take long for the apostle Paul to catch up, if you would. He joins forces with Barnabas. They go out, sent out and commissioned by the church, and they launch him forth in his first missionary journey. And before you know it, it begins with Barnabas sort of taking the lead. And then before you know it, there's a switch in the, the order of events, if you would. And Paul becomes sort of the lead, the leading voice, the, 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 the main preacher, the main leader, the, op, the apostolic envoy or emissary. He was sent, as he says, to preach him, Christ, 
among the Gentiles. That's what he says. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim. What a beautiful summary of Paul's preaching ministry. What is Paul preaching? When you want to know what is it that Paul preaches, right? What's his, what's his uh, hook? What's his agenda? What's his message? Paul's message could be summed up so Christocentrically that he would sum it up with one personal pronoun, him. That's who I proclaim. I, pro I proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was so utterly Christ-centered. He had such an intoxicating vision of the glories of Jesus Christ that he could preach nothing else, as it were. You remember what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, I determined, I resolved, I had made a, I made a pact, if you would, that I would not deviate from the message of Christ crucified. And all these concentric circles that flow out of Jesus Christ, all of these redemptive elements that flow out when you talk about justification or sanctification or reconciliation, propitiation or whatever it may be, they always lead back to Christ. And he would never get away from it. He never got bored of it. He, was, he never stopped being amazed and standing in awe of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, neither should we. We should never in our short little brief pilgrimage on earth, our little pilgrimage, little existence, exile existence here on earth, we should never cease to to marvel at the glories and at the wonders of Jesus Christ. I love what John Owen, the great 17th century Puritan pastor, scholar, preacher, I love what he did at the end of his life. After he wrote volumes of theology, he writes a beautiful little book called The Glories of Christ. And he died right after he wrote that. He died contemplating the magnificence of Jesus Christ. He died contemplating the glories of Jesus Christ, all of the rich truths of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's how I want to go out. I don't know about you. I want to go out contemplating all of what Paul calls the unfathomable riches of Christ. He never lost that. He never stopped contemplating Christ, preaching Christ, advancing Christ, lifting up Christ, bearing about in his body the sufferings of Christ. You know, to be an apostle was not an easy task. To be an apostle came with a great weight. And as a matter of fact, as an apostle, the apostle Paul, yes, he had all the privileges of being an apostle. He could do the signs of an apostle, right? He could inscripturate the word of God. I mean, he's an apostle. He wrote inspired writings. As he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, the things that we write to you are the commands of the Lord. So he had all of the privileges, all of these divine privileges given to him, but don't mistake the privilege as if it's some sort of protection from any sort of suffering or Obviously, you know quite the opposite. Paul suffered. Sometimes you look, I don't know if anybody suffered more than Paul in the Bible, apart from maybe, oh, Job and Jesus Christ himself. 
But the Apostle Paul suffered great, great uh, uh, trial and affliction. As a matter of fact, Paul sums up his entire ministry in an amazing way, doesn't he? He almost, he, he likens it unto a cosmic theater of suffering. So where, where is that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, amazing what he says there. In verse 9, this is the way he sums up all the trials, tribulations, suffering, all of the things that he went through. He, he almost speaks as, him, as he's some sort of spectacle to behold. He says, for I think, this is 1 Corinthians 4, 9. He says, I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world. And I think thereby world, he does not mean earth. I think thereby world, he does not mean humanity. I think thereby world, he does not mean Rome. I think thereby world, he means universe, spiritual dimensions. <laughs> he, he, why? Because he says both to angels and to men. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the angelic host or the host of men. When people looked into the ministry and the life of the apostles, it was a spectacle. It was a spectacle. God, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, had chosen the foolishness of preaching. And you know what? To the world, they are not impressed with your apostles or your prophets. They don't care. When somebody is spiritually blind, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man. He can't understand the things of the Spirit. Come with me with apostles. Come to me with prophets. It doesn't matter because the world, which is devoid of spiritual understanding, will always and ultimately see nothing but what, call, what Paul calls moros, foolishness, a bunch of morons, where the word moron comes from. They will see a fool in Paul, even though we see a genius. They will see a fool in the words of Paul, even though we hear in the preaching of Paul the most profound mysteries that we've ever heard. That's why regeneration is so, so important. As I said, the Apostle Paul saw himself as dominated by the person and work of Jesus Christ, and his apostleship is no different. Look at the modifier is this, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, now, what does that mean? Well, depending on the grammar and how you take it, uh, it could be either mean an apostle that is owned by Jesus Christ, apostle that is sent out by Jesus Christ, and there I tend to agree that it is probably both and. Yes, he is an apostle that is owned by Jesus Christ because Paul had no problem identifying himself as a doulos, a slave, right? We don't like the word slave very much today, and even in most English, even good translations like the NASB, which I think is the best translation, probably. Probably. But it doesn't matter if you've got an ESV or NASB or K KJV or they got so many V's today, right? It doesn't matter. They don't often translate the word doulos like they ought. The word is brutal. It means slave. And what happened during the Civil Rights Movement and the Modern translations that began, began to come out is that, well, sl the word slave is not really a friendly term or a politically correct term, you know, because it conjures up images of slavery. Well, there was slavery in Paul's day too, okay? 
and it was really bad. <laughs> it, wasn't a, it wasn't a real pretty thing. Yes, there were some slaves that were very privileged to have good masters and a good home, but there was plenty of corruption too. But Paul is trying to stress, even, even at the point of risking uh, a controversy, that he was, Romans 1.1, a slave of Christ. And also that he was an ambassador or an emissary of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors of Christ. We are his representatives. So Paul as an apostle was a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ in a unique way that you and I, again, don't possess. I don't believe in apostles and prophets today. I don't believe anybody has apostolic authority. I've had people tell me they're apostles. I had a guy who was 19 years old tell me he was an apostle. I said, you are? Wow. That must be pretty cool. 19 years old, you're an apostle. Man, you got a lot of things going for you at such a young age. No, my friends, there are no more apostles in the strict sense of the word. And what you find throughout the scriptures is that the word apostle functions in in uh, uh, what we could call non-technical, semi-technical, and technical uh, ways. There were those that are called apostles, but they're still not on par with the twelve and Paul. There are those that, are, that do apostolic things that are still not on par with the twelve apostles. But uh, just to show you this, that for Paul, the, very, the most primary thing in his work as an apostle, and what he's doing in 2 Corinthians, and what he's doing in all the churches, is his goal was to preach Christ. I know I've already mentioned that, but let me just read a few passages to you. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize. So there he's sort of dealing with what is his commission anyway? Well, according to this, he is making it clear that, look, my main purpose is not to go around baptizing as many people as I can, okay? Sort of tallying up all the baptisms that he can number, the way that some conventions and denominations do. But he doesn't care about that so much as he wants to preach the gospel. Notice he says that. But to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. He didn't want to hide the truth of the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, the, the power of the cross, the power of a atoning sacrifice on a tree, the power of a propitiation in the Messiah, the power of the Lamb of God laying down His life for His sheep. He didn't want to hide the power of the cross, not even with clever words or fine rhetoric or philosophy, as he's going to go on to develop in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. He doesn't want to impress people with rhetoric and eloquence. He just wants to present to them the raw reality of the cross. I love it. The cross. And that is actually part of any good gospel presentation. So if you ever present the gospel to anybody, it has to have the elements of a good gospel call, right? You've got to tell them about their dilemma, sin. You've got to tell them about the remedy, the cross of Christ. And you have to give them an invitation to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. So the cross is right at the center of a good, healthy, biblical gospel presentation. To the Ephesians, he says in 3.8, To me, the very least of all the saints. Amazing how Paul, even though he was an apostle, he did not allow his apostolic ministry to go to his head, so to speak. It did not 
inflate his ego. He's still, he's still very acutely aware of his own depravity, of his own lack, of his own shortcomings, of his own sin, his indwelling remaining sin. He says he is the very least of all the saints. He says this grace was given to me, here again, for what purpose? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Galatians 1.16, we've already looked at that, but again he says the reason why God called him was to reveal his son to him. So what for? So that he might preach him among the Gentiles. That's why God revealed himself to Paul, as he says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, so that he might be a vessel, an instrument, an instrument in the master's hand, an instrument that would go through suffering and trial, that would be a witness, a testimony before kings and people in authority. Amazing, amazing. Um, Paul was also accustomed to qualifying his apostolic ministry with this sort of divine origination, insisting that his, his calling to be an apostle did not come from man. Turn to the book of Galatians, because there he states the matter rather explicitly. He talks about how he was called, and he says here, Paul, in Galatians 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man. The NASB is taking great liberty with the Greek language at that point, okay? Uh, I, though I love, I just built up the NASB here, I'm tearing it down. But I'm just being honest with you in that they took great liberty to sort of draw out the meaning. The meaning. Because literally, it should be translated, not from man, neither through man. So they're trying to draw out the force of these prepositions. Not from, and then they insert, not sent from men. Talking about his commission, sent. Well, the word sent is not really in there. They're trying to show you that his ministry does not originate from any human commissioning. And then he says, nor through the agency of man. It wasn't as if Paul sat with Peter and Peter discipled him to the degree that now he was ready to become an apostle. No, it was way more divine than that, supernatural than that. There was a, a light that was imparted to the apostle Paul, an illumination. There was a, 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 an understanding, as one scholar said, it was as if all of Paul's messianic theology that he had learned from the Old Testament was instantly wrapped around the person of Jesus Christ at his conversion. He knew everything he learned from Gamaliel, everything he knew and, and he studied from the law. He knew that once, once the answer came in Acts chapter 9, when he asked God, Lord, who are you? And the divine response coming back was, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's as if all that Jewish messianic uh, theology clicked. Everything clicked. Everything made sense. He understood it all. And so what do you see? All throughout the, the writings of the Apostle Paul, all these Old Testament quotations, all of these references back to Isaiah 53, all of these references back to Deuteronomy 18, all these references back to all the messianic passages that you can think of. The Apostle Paul wraps them around the person and work 
of Jesus Christ. And he only could do that because he was divinely called. He was appointed by the will of God. The will of God was the, 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 the causal factor that made him an apostle. It was by the will of God that God qualified an otherwise extremely unqualified man. I mean, this is a guy with blood on his hands. He doesn't qualify for ministry, does he? He does by the will of God. And um, he insists that he was appointed to this very thing. And if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, and 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul uses technical language to speak of his divine appointment. He uses this Greek phrase, tithemi, means to assign. And in this context, it means a divine assignment for a specific ministerial task. And that task is to be an apostle. He says, for this I was appointed, 1 Timothy 2.7, I was appointed. That's a, very, that's a very technical term. A preacher and an apostle. And then he binds his calling with an oath. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. He says, he was appointed as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So he was appointed to preach. He was appointed to teach. And in 2 Timothy 1.11, he says the same thing. For which, speaking about the gospel, concerning the gospel, I was appointed, same word again, a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. I love it. That was his calling. That is what it means for Paul to be an apostle. He was an apostle, meaning he had the authority. He had that apostolic authority that he wrote with and spoke with and communicated to the churches and directed the churches and commanded the churches. And he was a preacher. He was a herald. He was an evangelist, we can even say. He brought the gospel. He was a missionary. Like I stated last week, Paul was that perfect balance of theologian and missionary, right? We could say Paul was a missionary theologian, right? He didn't just have head. He also had heart for the lost. He, also, he took all that theology and he put it to use. He didn't just sit on the knowledge that he had. He was active. He was constantly advancing and furthering the gospel through his missionary endeavors. So that is what he is called to do. The same word, just so that you know, is then extended beyond just the apostles, and it is applied to elders. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, speaks of appointing elders in every city. So now we see how that extension works, right? There are no more apostles today. So now what you have is pastors that are appointed to the churches. And that by God's will, hopefully, hopefully. Now let's look at Paul's companion. Because he, he mentions Timothy, right? If you go back uh, to the first verse there, he mentions his companion, Timothy, which he calls here our brother, or more technically, the brother, the brother. Timothy is, a, Timothy is beautiful. There's so much to learn from Timothy. Why? Because Timothy was young. Timothy was shy. Timothy was afraid of people. Timothy didn't have it all together. He wasn't the boldest, most courageous guy in the world. Timothy just, you know, he needed, he needed urging, right? He needed a little prodding sometimes. Come on, Timothy, get out there and do the work. 
that, that God's called you to do. We can learn a lot from Timothy. That God, number one, that God uses the Timothys of the world. You don't got to have it all together, okay? Your personality doesn't need to match the personality of the pastor that you aspire to be like or that you've seen over here. No. God will use you despite your, 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 your character flaws and despite whatever idiosyncratic deficiencies you might have. God can use anyone. And God will use us if we avail ourselves to him. But Paul in many places, reveals that, the, that, that, that Timothy held a special place in Paul's heart. Turn with me to uh, Acts chapter uh, 16. Acts chapter 16, uh, go to uh, verse 1, because it's amazing to me how that Paul, two things going on here. The apostle Paul had an eye, he had a keen eye for ministry, and he had a keen eye for ministers. He saw something in Timothy. He saw something in the life of Timothy that stuck out to him, that apparently he was impressed by. He saw qualities in Timothy that he really loved and he wanted. He wanted. Remember the story of John MacArthur and how Philip Johnson, Phil Johnson, I don't know how many people call him Philip, okay, Phil Johnson. Uh, but when, when MacArthur met Phil Johnson, he said he saw qualities in Phil Johnson. And he said, I must have this man as a director over grace to you. I must have him. I thought, wow, that's really, that's really interesting. John MacArthur must have saw something in Phil. He saw, saw some sort of qualities that, 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 that sort of compelled him to say, I need, I need to get this, this young man. He was young then. He's not young anymore. But, <laughs> but he was young then. And he said, man, he saw something in his life. That's why I got to have this guy on my side, so to speak. And that's what I think Paul does right here. He goes, let's just read verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra, and a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish man who was a believer. But his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him, and he circumcised him because, not for justification or in order for him to be fully in the covenant blessings of God or for him to be in a right standing with God or for any ritual purification. He circumcised him for ministry. So, wow, how many of you guys would be ready to go to that extent just to be in the ministry, right? Well, listen, Paul knew that among the Jewish synagogues that he was going to go to, the Jews would have made a big stink out of the fact that, hey, Timothy has a Greek father. No way is he coming in the synagogue, Right? He's an uncircumcised Gentile dog. And so Paul says, look, let's do away with that. Let's do away with that obstacle. And let's just do what we need to do. Become all things to all people so that somehow, by some means, we may, gain, we may save some. But you see that there, the, the, just the willingness on Timothy's part to go along with Paul. And then Paul, hearing of his good rapport, of his good reputation, is just amazing. And, and, and ever since that initial time, when he came to Paul's side, it seems like Tim Timothy never disappointed Paul, at least not in any significant way. Because when you look to Philippians chapter 2, you hear statements like this. Philippians 2.19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send to you Timothy shortly. He says, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit. The word literally, no one else of single soul, 
Nobody that shares my deepest soul, heartfelt passion and compassion for the church. I have no one else of, of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Look, look at verse 21, because this, this really reveals to us the, the nature and the heart and the attitude of a mature minister and a person that God will use, someone that will qualify in the eyes of God of somebody trustworthy for significant ministry. Who is it? It is the person who doesn't seek his own interests. They all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth. Oh, I love that. Men that aspire to the ministry in this room, meditate on this. Seek this. Become this. But you know of his proven worth. His character is proven. It's beyond doubt. Timothy, he earned his stripes, we could say. He was Paul's faithful companion. He was in it with Paul through thick and thin. He stood by his side. He didn't abandon Paul. He didn't turn aside like Demas. He didn't go back. But he stuck it out. He was faithful. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. It took me years to understand this. That in ministry, what is really important is not whether or not you can exegete the Greek text. It's not whether or not you can cite all of the systematic theologians and authors and you can, you can, you know, you can blurt out all the latest controversies and you, you know everything going on in the blogosphere. That is not what qualifies you for ministry. What qualifies a man for ministry, I believe, is the level of his faithfulness, the level of his commitment to the church, the level of his concern not for himself but for the welfare of the church. He is selfless. He is, he is willing to abandon all self, selfish ambition. You see what I mean by the fact that we can learn a lot from Timothy. And Timothy had a connection with the Corinthians. He was there, all of Paul's correspondences with them. So now, let's turn to the Corinthians themselves. He goes on to say in his salutation here, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to real people, real Christians, real people with real problems and real sinners and people dealing with real situations. This is, a real, this is as real as it gets. That's a problem with churches that play so much fun and games in church, right? They try to turn Christianity into as, a, as much of a funny, trivial, banality sort of thing that you, right? We drove by a church the other night and they had a huge carnival out front and Boy, is the church supposed to be a circus? I mean, look, okay, all right, you want to have a carnival at your church, go ahead. I'm not going to condemn you. Well, probably I'd have to repent a little bit, but, you know, it just, where's the priority? Is the priority in the carnival? I mean, really? No. The priority is to have a healthy church. The priority is to have a biblical church, to have the church bear the marks of a true, healthy church. And uh, that's what Paul wants for these people. But let me just say this. The correspondence between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians is very complex. It's one of the most, it's the most complex correspondence that exists in the Bible between Paul and any other church. There are, because there are so many problems. There are so many issues. And Paul's heart is so ripped out of him time and time again by these Corinthians. Because he writes to them and he hears reports about them and he thinks things are going to be getting better. But then he gets a bad report saying, no, it's still bad. 
And so he's got to write another letter to them, and it's just back and forth. And he's got to visit them and come with discipline and come with a disciplinary tone. And then he, you know, always laboring and laboring with them. Let me just sort of break this down first. After Paul's departure from Corinth, he hears a bad report. Paul writes a preliminary letter that we know from, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He writes some letter that he refers to in 1 Corinthians. That's the preliminary letter that he wrote. Secondly, more problems arise, apparently. That's in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 11. You see that. And so Paul then seeks to clarify all sorts of issues that they wrote to him about. And that's in 1 Corinthians 7, 1. He seeks to clarify problems, apparently, and questions that they had for him. In response, Paul will write 1 Corinthians. Then thirdly, apparently, Paul, Paul sends Timothy to visit them. And after Timothy's visit, it was apparently unsuccessful. Timothy was incapable of fulfilling the things that Paul wanted to see, not because of any deficiency in Timothy, but because the Corinthians had not repented of various things, especially those who were trying to undermine Paul's authority. He did not adequately stamp out the Pauline opposition that existed in Corinth. And so that results apparently in chap, uh, 2 Corinthians 2.1 in what is known as the painful visit of the Apostle Paul, where apparently Paul comes with a painful, again, disciplinary tone towards the letter. After which, Paul writes another letter that we don't have apparently a non-canonical, what they call, because it, wasn't in the, it didn't end up in the Christian canon, and also non-extent, meaning we don't have it anymore. It doesn't exist. We don't know where it is, or we don't have copies even, or extant manuscripts of it, okay? So, but don't, don't, don't take that to mean that we lost something, right? You have liberals of that cut, you know, and that, that train of thought that at the, any sign of, of, of these sorts of things, they, they, they try to blow it up into a conspiracy. Oh, the lost letters of the Bible. <laughs> Preposterous. Listen, my friends, the Word of God has always had a perfect attestation. If you study the canonization process, and I don't want to go on this, chase this rabbit forever, but I'm tempted to, okay? There are good books that are written on this. I encourage you to write. For those of you that want to go a little deeper, F.F. Bruce has a book on the canon of Scripture. Bruce Metzger has a book uh, on, on, on the canon as well, where they demonstrate the validity of the Christian canon. And uh, there is a lot of attestation of the Christian canon. It's only the most liberal people of all that want to, at any sign of discrepancy or any seeming contradiction, that immediately want to insert the liberal agenda into the Bible. Just listening to a message by G.K. Beale. Uh, seminary, uh, uh, seminary professor at Westminster. And he said, you know what? After his experience of years and years of being at seminaries, you know what he said? He says, it is the liberals who so quickly throw in the towel that the minute they see some kind of a, a, apparent contradiction, they, they just throw up the towel, they stop studying, and they throw up their hands and they label it a contradiction. And he said that he gave one example of a seminary student that took years and years to pound out a seeming contradiction and that he, at the end of that study, he came to a sufficient uh, argument that resolved the problem for him. No, it is oftentimes the liberals that are the, the, the quickest to throw in the towel and to stop studying until they get an answer. But now, 
the fourth thing that happened was that after seeking a visit Corinth, after he, re re he received some news from Titus that most of the Corinthians had repented, most of them had supported him again, then Paul writes 2 Corinthians, our letter. And he writes the letter for what reason? To strengthen the church so that it might continue to go down the apostolic tradition, so that it might continue to support Paul's apostolic authority. I mean, maybe it's hard for us to grasp this, but think about it. You're a New Testament church. The Apostle Paul is responsible for you coming to Christ, and then years go down the road, maybe two or three years elapse, and then these teachers that seem to know a lot start infiltrating the church, and before you know it, they start saying things like, hey, you know what, we just don't really know if the Apostle Paul is really, you know, like an apostle. We're not sure if he really has the authority that he claims to have, and that develops into a whole conspiracy that seeks to undermine Paul's teaching. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians, to strengthen the church's resolve to stay in the orthodox apostolic tradition and not to deviate from the center. That's why. That's why he wrote it. That is the reason why he wrote it. So, with that, let me just move on to the aim of this book. There's so much more that can be said about that, brothers and sisters. Let's just get a little bit into the aim of this book. Uh, verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common salutation that Paul uses in most of his letters. But it's a, if you would, it is a grace wish. Grace to you. It is the desire to impart grace to the hearers. We could say the whole letter is Paul's desire to impart sanctifying grace to the hearers. He wants to see them continue on in the grace of God. Uh, it's an amazing way to open the letter. If you've studied anything concerning these opening salutations, Paul did something quite unique in the history of Greco-Roman writing. Because oftentimes letters written in the Greco-Roman culture, they would have not grace to you, but they would have a different Greek word. The word grace is charis. The word that they would often use is the word karein, which comes from Cairo, to rejoice. It would literally mean greetings. So that would be a letter that any pagan in the Roman culture would write to a friend, greetings to you, my friend. Paul substitutes the word, substitutes the word greetings for the word grace. He, he spiritualizes this greeting. He, we could say he Christianizes the, the greeting. And by using the word peace, he also connects the Christian reading to the Jewish tradition because peace was a Jewish, uh, a Jewish salutation. Shalom was one of the ways that you would greet people as a Jew. And so Paul combines both of these Christian virtues, grace and peace, to define the proper way of greeting the brethren. Not that you and I have to go around and every time, hey, grace and peace to you, brother. Okay? But you understand what he's doing. He's motivated by the gospel. The gospel is what's caused Paul to insert the, the word grace. The gospel is what caused Paul to insert the word peace. We could even say one flows out of the other because you could not have peace without grace. And without grace, you could, have, could not have peace. 
It is only by experiencing the grace of God in your life that you will experience the peace of God. It is only until the grace of God has so taken root in your life and transformed your life that you can now experience the grace of God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. After the gospel has had its gracious effect in your life, then results the tranquility of a pure conscience and the tranquility of a relationship with God. You are at peace with God now. You are not at enmity with God. You're at peace with God. You are no longer at war with God. You're at peace with God. There's no longer any animosity. God can now call you friend. It is the greatest of all things, my friends, to be called a friend of God. To be in a position where you know God is favorably disposed to me. God projects his friendship to me. There's nothing better than that. I don't know about you, but before becoming a Christian, I lived in the constant terror of the Lord. I lived in the constant, with a conscience that was constantly smitten by God's wrath and God's judgment looming over me, just like Jesus said, the wrath of God abiding upon you. And so... The peace of God should be sought after with everything within us. Now, let me tell you the other aim then of Paul's ministry. Turn to uh, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. We're almost done. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But that what we find is the Apostle Paul, like I said, constantly trying to prove, hey, I'm an apostle, I have a genuine apostolic ministry, I have a genuine apostolic authority. And what you find is that that argument intersects all the different contexts of the book. So that when Paul wants to talk about the glories of the new covenant, he doesn't do it aside from asserting his apostolic authority. Verse 1, chapter 3, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not from ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And then he launches out into a glorious exploration of the nature of the new covenant ministry. But it's not without, again, defending his apostolic authority. He does this time and time again. In chapter 1, he'll talk about what it means to have a pure conscience in ministry. Again, asserts his apostolic ministry. In chapter 2, he will talk about the fact that his opponents were, uh, that the church was coming, finally coming against the opponents, asserting his ministry there again. And in chapter 4, Paul will defend the manner of his ministry, the way that he related with the people, the way that he preached with the people, that he wasn't trying to peddle the word of God, but that he had utter sincerity in the way that he ministered among the churches. So over and over, Paul's burden is to prove his ministry, that he has a God-originated, God-centered Christ-glorifying ministry. 
And so 2 Corinthians really is a masterpiece for what is, what is ministry supposed to look like. It is a masterpiece of ministerial principles that we can glean from. That's why people like D.A. Carson, they've written uh, books on what it means to have maturity in ministry because of this. Ministry models are built on 2 Corinthians and so on and so forth. Lastly, as I stated at the outset, the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians because he wanted the church to mature. He wanted a mature church. He was looking out for the spiritual interests of the church. He wanted to see a healthy church. And brothers and sisters, that's what we should desire to see in our church. A healthy, spiritually vibrant, uh, doctrinally sound, evangelistically zealous, missions-minded, one another fulfilling, fulfilling all the one another ministries of the Bible. In other words, we should want that same, uh, uh, that same spiritual maturity in our own lives. And you know what, brothers and sisters? It has everything to do with how you think. Everything. Everything to do with how you think. You remember what Paul says in the book of Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to discern what is the will of God, what is acceptable, and what is pleasing to Him. That's how a church will learn how to do the will of God. By being renewed in your mind. By taking your thoughts captive, or as Second Peter says in chapter 3, verse 18, by growing in grace and in knowledge. That perfect balance. Growing in grace and growing in knowledge. And in 2 Corinthians, what we're going to find is that Paul sees that, that Christian maturity inextricably bound with the church's conformity to the apostles' doctrine. So that to the degree that the church conformed to the apostles' doctrine, to that degree, as much as they obeyed, as much as they were obedient to his commands, to that degree, the church would grow in its spiritual maturity. It wasn't based on so much of what we're seeing today. It wasn't based on church growth methods. You know, having a real big church is not a sign of spiritual maturity, my friends. That is no certain sign of grace just because you got a thousand people in the door. Spiritual maturity has to be according to sound words, sound doctrine, sound teaching. And can I say this? Spiritual maturity is, the, is, is measured by the holiness of the church, by the holiness of the church. Not the gimmicks, not the endless 101 programs, not by all of the different, the, the vast ministerial schemes that we can come up with. No, those, those can be good. There's nothing wrong with organization in the church. There's nothing wrong with trying to reach people and get people. I want people to come in this church. I want to come up here and see a full church. But numbers are no certain sign of holiness or maturity or that you're doing things biblically. Sadly today, there are too many churches that are too big and they have too little doctrine in them. It's just almost working the opposite, right? And people, because of the, because of the, the seeker-sensitive movement, 
because of the, the, the prosperity movement, because of the church growth movement. Everyone, everyone scrambled around uh, in the 60s and 70s. Everybody scrambled around for church growth. And what happened was that pragmatism reigned supreme in the church. It doesn't matter why you should do something or if you should do something. All that matters is how you do it. It became pragmatism that reigned in the church. But Paul knew nothing of pragmatism in the church. Paul saw the church as the hub of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, I write to you so that you ought to know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, described as the pillar and the support of the truth. Sadly, today, pastors, some pastors care much more about the way things look, how they look, right? They care more about being hip, cool, relevant. They can relate, right? Uh, what you see on American Idol is what you will see up on stage. What you see on MTV, we'll, we'll try to get as many of those elements into our church without crossing the line, which they probably crossed the line a long time ago. But they're trying to incorporate so many of these things and very few churches now are leading with, do my people understand the book of Romans? Do my people, can my people tell me what the word propitiation means? Can anyone give me a biblical description or a biblical definition of the word justification? And so the result is a spiritually anemic church where the church, sadly, becomes more of a social club, a social network, a place where you go to make connections, a place where you go find a date, a place where you go find a boyfriend or a girlfriend, instead of the pillar and support of the truth, the hub of God's eternal truth. Paul had no such vision for the church. Paul wanted the church to tremble in fear, to tremble in holiness, to tremble as it works out its salvation in fear and in trembling, knowing that it is God Almighty, God the Holy One, who is at work in you to do whatever He wills. It is God who is at work in us, brothers and sisters. And that's why Paul tells the Philippians, please don't give yourself to grumbling and complaining. Where, where do we get the background for grumbling and complaining? It's in the Old Testament, right? The children of Israel grumbled, complained against Moses. They complained at the providence of God. And Paul is saying, don't give yourselves to grumbling and complaining. But he says, do all things without grumbling, without disputing. Prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent children of God, above reproach, in the, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among, among which you appear as lights in the world. And then he, he says this final thing, hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. And brothers and sisters, to the degree that we hold fast the word of life, we will not run in vain in this church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the patience of your people. I know, Lord, that some of these introduction sermons and messages 
can tend to be uh, dry historical lessons, but God, we appreciate the whole Bible. We appreciate every aspect of the Bible, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the historicity of the Bible. We thank you for the, the, the structure. We thank you for the, the theology of the Bible. We thank you for the practicality of the Bible. We thank you for the application of the Bible. We thank you for all of it, Lord. Father, we pray that Paul's vision of a healthy church would be fulfilled in us. We don't want a famous church. God, we don't want a popular church. Lord, what we want is a healthy church, a godly church, a holy church. Please, God, never, never allow us to lose sight of what a healthy biblical church is all about. We thank you for your word today. We pray that it would have its full effect in our lives. And it's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in a, a, a song.